You may be seated. Self-help preacher. You know, it's said that there are um, things that cause us to remember way better than just like the memory of something happening in our heads. And one of the strongest things is smell. When we smell certain things, it brings memories to mind. Music, though, um, two of those songs um, were songs that were sung at the weekend that I uh, became a believer in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And um, it's so powerful. Every time I hear them, it just brings me back there to that moment. And I look at the face of Jesus Christ in the, f- the faces of those men that served me this weekend and showed me the love of Jesus Christ that I had never known before and that I had steadfastly resisted and rejected. And yet God's Spirit worked in my heart to bring me to that place and to show me the love and to have me say, I want that, I want that. And that's what we're supposed to do with everyone else around us. We're supposed to be that love of Jesus Christ to those around us so that they also want that, want what we have. Well, last week, Dirk talked about the Great Commission and the need to love Jesus more than anything else in our lives. And I dare say that most of us cannot say that that is true for us. Will we leave house, family, job, spouse, for the sake of Jesus, would be we would we be willing to do that? Whether we are called to do that or not, would we do it? Would we even consider it? And even if we are not called to go elsewhere, would we give up our worldly pleasures and our pursuits in order to serve him? Or is it hard to come in on Wednesday night to volunteer with the youth or show up on Monday night to help with the men's group? I struggle with that as well. I jealously guard my time, particularly my free time, when I don't have anything to do except waste time. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. And what a waste that is, isn't it? When all we have to do is to waste time. We just want to unwind. We want to clear our minds. We want to decompress whatever else it is. But what a waste. And God calls us to a life of sanctification which is not perfection. We will be perfect one day. But he calls us to this life of sanctification, and he changes us little by little, bit by bit, into the image of Jesus Christ. And if we truly ask him, he will remove the impediments to our serving him. He will help us to gradually give up the idols which prevent us from dedicating ourselves to him. He did this to me after I became a believer with fishing. I was a fishing fanatic. I fished three, four days a week, and um, and now I'm lucky I fish at all. I still love to fish, but he's put things in my life that give me more joy than being out in the water trying to fake out some fish into biting on my lure, although they are delicious, I have to say. And he did this also with my free time in the evenings. You know, when we ran our shop here in town, we worked six days a week in our business. I did not want to give up my Sundays, which was my only day off. I did not want to give up my weekends because I worked all day long. And so what did God do? Anybody remember what God did to us? Yeah. He took away our businesses, which made it really easy to devote time to him. Okay. But I did say easier because... 
I still want to keep time for myself. I still have a hard time dedicating myself completely to the Lord. But God wants to do the same thing for every one of us here without the fire, probably. But he does. He wants to make it easy for us to serve him, to dedicate ourselves for him. And in today's passage from Colossians, Paul tells us what our job as new creations in Christ really is. He began his discussion in chapter 3, verse 5, where he discussed the personal characteristics of the new man, what the new man had to get rid of in order to be a new man in Christ. He told us to put off and put to death sins of immorality, sins of lust, sins of anger, sins of lying, sins of the tongue. In chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, he discussed the home life of the new creation. What does that look like? We discussed the roles of husbands and wives, of parents and children, of masters and slaves even. Okay. And, slippery hands today. And remember, the purpose of these rules for Christian living, new creation life, is for building up the church. Christ's body so that we can be a blessing to the unsaved world around us. Like Abraham was. Abraham was chosen by God to be a blessing to those around them so that other people would seek to have a relationship with God again, which was lost to the human race in the Garden of Eden when man sinned and fell away. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. And in today's passage, Paul broadens the scope of this discussion of new creation to include prayer, mission work or evangelism, and our conduct with unbelievers. He focuses specifically or especially on the speech of the new man and what the watching world observes when it sees a Christian and evaluates Christianity. And in the process of the sanctification that we go to and becoming more Christ-like, we find we must again rely on the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us. We cannot do it ourselves. The Holy Spirit has to do it. So let's read the scripture from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is perfect. Your word gives us all that we need in order to be able to live lives that are like Christ and to be a light and salt in the world to those around us, Lord. Put your word into our heart today. Convict us of our sins and show us the path forward that we might be obedient to you. Amen. So, <clears throat> this section of Colossians, these few verses, is about the speech of the new man. Speech with God, which is prayer. We then hear about the speech of proclaiming the word to the rest of the world. And after that, we hear about the acted out form of speech, how we act around unbelievers. We've heard it said actions speak louder than words. Not always, but people do listen to us through how we act. And sometimes actions do speak louder than words, but Paul reminds us, though, that we have to use the words of God when we speak to the world. 
It's not enough to just be kind and gentle. We have to use the words of God. And Paul finishes off this section by telling us how we can perfect our speech and make it effective for spreading the gospel. Now, just like in the past sections of this letter that we've been going through Christian living, there is a parallel uh, passage in Ephesians. Chapter 6, 18 through 20 of Ephesians provides, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Ephesians fleshes out this concept of prayer. And prayer is not just offering up what you, what you feel like praying about. It has to be in the spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians. He tells us here in Colossians that we need to be steadfast in prayer, and he tells us to also to intercede, to pray for others, to make supplication, to rely on the Spirit in our prayers. Now, we've discussed prayer before in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and also at the beginning of this series in Colossians, where Paul prayed for the Colossians. Prayer is, simply speaking, speech with God, talking with God. But Paul here is talking about a specific kind of prayer. It is intercessory prayer, supplication. It is, but it is not only intercessory prayer where we're asking for something particular from God. He's referring here to corporate prayer. Okay? Because he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Who is this letter directed to? This letter is directed to the church at Colossae. And so while we are certainly called to pray individually, Recall this being a letter to a church. Paul's command to continue steadfastly in prayer is directed to the church. He is clearly saying that the church should have specific things that it is praying about as a body. Do we have such things in this church? And if not, we need to because that's what Paul says prayer is all about. Now we're praying for a pastor and we're hopefully going to hear before the congregational meeting whether... Dirk feels a calling to be the pastor here. That's one of the things this congregation has been praying for. And God has been gracious in listening to that prayer and has provided us with people to stand in this pulpit and preach, even when we don't have someone that we call pastor, which is not a magic bullet, by the way, as as everybody knows. But God has listened to our prayer. God is answering our prayer in the time and manner in which God sees fit to do. But what other things do we pray about as a church? And that's something to keep in mind as we move forward here, talking, uh, or talking about what Paul has to say, but pondering what is this church all about? What is Chef Church all about? So this short section of this letter has really two important functions. First, Paul tells the Colossians and, and us That this life of the new humanity, he's been talking about the new man, the new creation, in the Lord, this life in the Lord, is not something to be enjoyed merely for its own sake. We don't enjoy being in the Lord just because we feel good being in the Lord. There's a greater purpose to it than that, and he tells us what that is. The Colossian church, in addition to its privileges of being a new creation, has new responsibilities as well. There's things it has to do. But secondly, Paul began the letter 
back in chapter 1, with thanksgiving for God's worldwide work through the gospel. He says, I thank God I've been able to go throughout the whole known world and talk about the gospel. And so now he turns back to that work about talking about the gospel in the world and his part in it. But now he claims the Colossians as partners. He started out saying, I've done all this stuff. I've been praying. I've been preaching. I've been doing all this. And now he comes back and he says, you're my partners. The church of Jesus Christ is my partner in this. And he sets before them the tasks that are appropriate to them as this new community in Christ and in Colossae. And so we also, as Chef Church in Hot Springs, South Dakota, are partners in preaching the gospel with all the other churches and evangelists that are out there preaching the gospel. And we are partners in prayer, and we are partners in good conduct as well, and because we're meant to bring glory to the church and to Jesus Christ. We are not meant to bring shame because of inappropriate or non-Christ-like speech in the world. We are partners in prayer, preaching, and performance. So Paul gives us some instructions on how to pray here. He tells us, First, to continue steadfastly, or to devote ourselves, or to pray with perseverance. Now, the Greek word which Paul uses means to hold fast, hold on fast, not let go. He's calling believers to persist in prayer. He tells them in Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times. He tells them, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians. He tells them to be devoted to prayer in Romans 12.12. They are to imitate the apostles. In Acts 6-4, when the Greek believers were feeling left out of the food distribution, the apostles told the church, pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and appoint them to that duty of feeding them. Because in verse 4 it says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. That was the greater purpose. That's the battle that gets fought in this world, is the battle of prayer. And even Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, is used as an example of this kind of prayer in Acts 10.2, where it describes him as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Even the Gentiles prayed continually to God. We talked about this perseverance in prayer when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about persevering prayer at Luke eleven five through 10. And we'll read that because these are Jesus' words to us about persevering prayer. And right after Jesus instructs the disciples in Luke on how to pray, they say, teach us to pray. So he teaches them the prayer of young believers, the Lord's Prayer. And then he says, Then he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from with him, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one, to who, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. And later Jesus tells the story of the widow who harasses the crooked judge until he gives her justice. She comes back every day, I need justice, now go away, I need justice, go away. You know, you have any kids? 
okay? You know what it's like. Just, can I, can I, can I? And finally, you, ah, okay? But he did that. We are commanded to be steadfast in our prayers and to persevere. And the point of those two stories is that if unwilling and sinful human beings will honor persistence, how much more will our holy, loving, heavenly Father honor that persistence? Are we steadfast in our prayers? Do we wrestle with God in our prayers? Think about the image, wrestling with God in our prayers. Jacob wrestled with God. He would not let him go until God blessed him. At Genesis 32, verses 24 through 26, we read, And Jacob was left alone, and a man, God, wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What a lesson for how to pray. I will not let you go, God, until you bless me. Jacob wrestled with God in prayer at the cost of his dislocated hip and lifelong limp. Okay? This type of prayer that we read about is contrasted with the glib, self-centered prayer of our day. You know, oh, you know, I had a flat tire. Whatever. Now, we're not, we should pray for all of those things. But God says, and Paul tells us, we need to pray about important stuff too. We need to be persevering in this prayer. True prayer involves struggling and grappling with God, proving to him the deepest concerns of our hearts. And so when I pray for my children, my, the ones that aren't here today, the older ones, um, you know, I'm like, God, I've been praying for these things for years. I haven't seen what you've done. Show me. Show me. Now, he doesn't listen to my commands, just like he didn't listen to Job's commands, but he honors the fact that I am persistent and that I want something. And I know, even though I don't see it now, and I may never see it in this lifetime, he will grant those prayers because those are prayers that are being offered in accordance with his word for belief, for salvation, for redemption. But when we do this with God, when we wrestle with God with the deepest concerns of our hearts, it can be dangerous. We've all prayed for patience, and we know that one. You know, you, you get the person in line in front of you at the grocery store looking for the pennies, you know. But when we wrestle with God, we do need to be careful because as one of the children in the Chronicles of Narnia says, he's not a tame lion, okay? God is not a tame God. He is a God that grants our prayers, but he is a God that is so powerful and awesome. So powerful and awesome. So are we wrestling with God in that manner? Are we steadfast in our prayer? When we pray for our children or our spouses or our friends, do we tell God we will not stop praying until he grants our prayer? Perhaps it is time to start doing that. No more half measures with prayers. How about that for a resolution? Be bold, courageous, wrestle with God. Follow the example of Paul. So remember, Paul, Paul uses all those examples of athletic things, wrestling and training and striving, whatever else. Let's follow that example. So Paul tells us, be steadfast in prayer, persevere. Now, prayer also involves watching, being watchful, keeping alert. Okay? We are drawn immediately when we talk about being alert to the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at Matthew 26 where he says, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Okay, he says, well, stay over here, i got to go pray. So he finds them sleeping, and he says to Peter, so, 
Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So most basically what Paul's saying here is stay awake. Don't fall asleep when you're praying. I don't know whether anybody else has had this experience or not, but if you pray at night in bed but consistently fall asleep, pick a different time to pray. It is impossible to pray when you're sleeping. And it can happen at any time during the day. But that's one of the things that Paul is saying. But it means more than simply being physically alert. Paul is also saying that believers should look for and be alert to those things about which they ought to be praying. Paul calls Christians the children of the day in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, Jesus coming, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. As children of the day, we must stay awake and look out on this world which is in darkness, but which is also the object of God's love and should be the object of his people's devoted prayer. We must pay attention. We must be alert. Family, church, country, world, the dangers that threaten the church, blessings received and promised, the will of God, all these should be the subject of our prayers, our wrestling with God. And finally, Paul tells us, so we have steadfastness, we have alertness, and Paul tells us us that our prayer must be with thanksgiving. This is the fifth time in the letter, and this is a short letter, that Paul has mentioned gratitude or thanksgiving. In 1.12, he told us to be grateful for our salvation. In 2.6, grateful for our growth in Christ. In 3.15, grateful for our fellowship in the church with Christ. In 3.17, grateful for the opportunity to serve Jesus Christ and to serve the church. There are so many reasons to be grateful and thankful for God's spiritual blessings and, and privileges. We should be thankful for God's presence, His presence among us today and at other times, for God's provision, for his pardon, all three of which, by the way, are the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Thankful for those things. Our Father in heaven, our daily bread, forgive us our debts, our trespasses. We should also be grateful for our salvation and for God's promise of victory through Jesus Christ. We should be thankful for God's purpose because it says in Romans 8, 28, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not a few things, not some things, but all things, all things, everything that happens work together for good in God's plan. We don't see it, but they do. We should be thankful for that. Thank you, Lord, for that. For that knowledge, that hope. And I would commend to you, I told the youth I was going to talk about them today. I would commend to you the, the youth in our youth group, some of which are sitting over there, you know, trying, trying to keep their heads down here. This past Wednesday at youth group, we taught and learned several disciplines of prayer, 
with our prayer stations. We do this a couple times a year, prayer stations in the youth group. And the youth and the adult volunteers, we learned the discipline of praying the attributes of God. We had a list of the attributes of God. People would write one on the board, and then they would pray over that. And then other people would see those and add things to it. Because that's one of the things we pray about. We prayed about the promises of God. We had a bowl with different promises. They picked one and they prayed over it. We prayed about being the light to the world. How could we be the light to the world? We prayed for forgiveness of our sins, wrote them on a piece of paper and put them in a paper shredder to demonstrate that they're gone. They're gone. Okay? We, prayed, we learned about intercessory prayer and asking for prayer from others. We have a prayer wall downstairs where you write a prayer request, you put it in the wall, and someone else picks it out, prays for you, but you can put your own prayers back there. So we learned to pray for others, but how do we ask for prayers for ourselves? Because sometimes we're embarrassed to admit those things. And then we prayed about just resting in God's presence. Just being there with the word on our lap, reading it, maybe listening to some praise music. But finding rest from our burdens. Because Jesus says, come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's part of what we pray for as well. And so, and as long as we're talking about youth... We spoke last time when we were together about children and their parents and the godly guidance that parents can provide. But children and youth need all of the adults in their lives to reach out and encourage them. And I would encourage all of the adults in this congregation to reach out and encourage the youth that are here, whether you know them or not. Because they need to hear from adults other than their parents because parents are supposed to say these things, that they're appreciated, prayed for, and worthy of our attention. Okay? And they are. They all are. And they're here, and they're trying to learn the Word, and we need to encourage them, because the purpose, the purpose of our youth program is to get kids to become Christian adults, to show what it's like to live in a community of caring Christian people that will build each other up. And isn't one of our problems today the lack of godly instruction and discipling of young people by other dedicated believers of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that have solved a lot of the things that are going on? Here's your opportunity to do something about that. So I would challenge you to do that. Just talk to some youth. You'll scare them to death. They're like, why is this, why is this old person talking to me? Okay, But I can tell you that, that it pays that it pays off. Because you know, I've been volunteering in the youth group for a number of years um, and there are youth that come back from college that will seek me out at one of these things and tell me all about what's going on in their life. And that's because I cared about them and I told them that. And I say that not to brag, but only to say that we have an impact on people we never even know we have an impact on. So, youth. Anyway, the point is, though, about this, prayer is something that needs to be learned. Okay? We don't come by it automatically. <clears throat> Jesus, his disciples say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. Okay? And so Jesus gave his disciples the first lesson in the Lord's Prayer, a lesson to, at that time, baby believers who had not yet learned to abide in him. They had not yet learned to pray in his name, as we talked about last time, about being in his name. And that prayer, the, the Lord's Prayer, is all about one word, really, which is Father. Okay, it's Father. You pray to your father. Your father sees. Your father hears. Your father knows. Your father will reward. Your father will protect you much more than any earthly father. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. All you have to do is be childlike and trustful. And as his training of his disciples progressed, Jesus 
gives further instructions for prayer. Remember, he says, this kind goes out only by fasting and prayer, which is a little bit more than just getting on your knees. You have to do something. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry day and night to him? Okay, not a tame lion. Not just that recite this prayer over and over again, but do something, right? The wrestling prayer with God, um, this prayer as a battle concept, prayer as war against forces of evil, that's what Paul is talking about here, because that's what he was facing. I mean, he's facing the Roman Empire, which was an evil pagan empire. He's facing the forces of idol worship and paganism, things that, as you remember in the book of Acts, when you stepped on the rights of those tradesmen to make their, their, their idols, they stoned you, or they tried to throw you in prison, or they tried to get rid of you. And so Jesus next says, okay, after you've, after you've mastered that baby prayer, the, the Lord's prayer, and then next, take on the battle part of the prayer, and finally Jesus instructs his disciples as men in the faith, as, as mature men that he spent three years with, and, and he's taught them what to do and what they need to know. He calls them friends. He says, you are my friends now, and I have no secrets from you. And he hands over to them the keys of the kingdom. And remember, friends, he has done this to all of us here. We are his friends. He has handed over the keys to the kingdom. And he tells them to pray in his name when the Holy Spirit has been poured upon them. And he says the same to us. The Holy Spirit has been poured upon every person in this room that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Our prayer life progresses as we grow in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul in Ephesians tells them to pray in the Spirit, to pray in the name of Jesus, to claim his power. To pray in the name of Jesus means that we have to live in the name of Jesus. And that is what Paul's talking about here. Now, having told us how to pray, Paul next asks for some specific prayers from the Colossians. If you recall, back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul prayed a prayer for them. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he prayed for them back then, and now he says, pray also for us, us, Paul and the folks that he's traveling with. And for what does he tell them to pray for? Well, number one, the same things that he prayed for them in chapter one. But also, he says, pray that God would open doors And that I would be able to preach the mystery of Christ and to make the gospel clear to those around us. This is the prayer that they pray for Paul to be able to proclaim the gospel. Now Paul asks for prayers for open doors. Pardon me. But note that he asks them to pray that God would open doors. Because Paul's not going to be the one to open doors. God's going to open the doors. And for every one of us that's looking to share the gospel with someone, God will open those doors. We do not open those doors by clever statements, by waiting for the right opportunity, for using the right words. God opens doors for us to do that. He just wants us to tell him the word. 
Revelation 3.7 describes Jesus as the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. It's Jesus that does that. And he asks for a door, Paul does not, for himself, because he's in prison. He's not asking to get out of prison. He asks for a door for the gospel, because this gospel is living and active, as he says in chapter 1, verse 16. Now, we know that God literally opened the door for Peter in Acts when he unlocked the prison doors and freed Peter to preach the gospel. Paul's asking for the door to be open for the opportunities to preach the gospel. And he asks further that they pray he would be able to declare the mystery of Christ. The mystery that Christ died for the Gentiles also to save them for their sins so that they would be a part of God's family, the church. Unless we think that preaching the gospel is safe, note that Paul is in prison when he's preaching this letter. And the message that challenges the power structure of the age is always dangerous to proclaim, as pastors in Canada are finding out even now. When you preach against that, it is dangerous. And so, he finally asks that they pray for him that he would make the gospel clear, which is how he's supposed to speak. He's supposed to speak clearly. And each of us has a mandate to preach the gospel as Dirk preached about last week. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul said, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Now, woe doesn't mean, oh, man. Now, woe means judgment of God on me if I don't preach the gospel, okay? Because remember, Jesus did the whole woe thing with the Pharisees, and that was not a good thing. It was not a casual thing. So, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, and we should all be Similarly convicted, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And believe, I know I do not preach the gospel like I should preach the gospel. And when Paul says how I ought to speak, he's talking about a clear presentation of the gospel. Paul testified to both Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us the gospel should be proclaimed clearly, boldly, wisely, and graciously. Without any question, it must include repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which doesn't happen if all you're doing is holding doors open for people or paying it forward at the McDonald's line. Those are all wonderful things, but that's not preaching the gospel. So Paul talks then about this intercessory prayer, both individual and corporate, and he talks about prayer for our great commission. He requests that they pray like he prays. And how did he pray in chapter 1, verse 9? The same way that he wants them to pray now. He wants them to be partners with him in prayer. So in verses 2 to 4, Paul seeks prayer for the missional work of those in Colossae and Paul himself. He said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And then in verses 5 and 6, pardon me, he shifts to prayer for his and the Colossians' missional life among outsiders. And he says, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul and the Colossians are to be partners in preaching. And we are to be partners with Paul in preaching too. And so how is Paul telling us to conduct ourselves in the world? Well, 
Paul is talking here when he says conduct yourself wisely, making uh, the most of the time and let your speech be gracious. He's not just talking about being a nice person. He's talking about being missional. This is missionary work that Paul is talking about here. The church, like the family of Abraham, is God's sent people who are to be a blessing to the unbelieving world, and they're to preach the good news of the gospel. And this section is one of the few pieces of advice that's given in the entire New Testament about how to deal and how to live life among non-believers. You don't see that. Most of the letters are all to believing people, okay? This is about non-Christians. And it tells us first about, uh, as we deal with non-believers or unbelievers around us, we must conduct ourselves with wisdom. Wisdom. The Bible always draws a distinction between the fool and the wise man. We see that all the time. We are to be the wise man and not engage in foolish behavior. Only if we live wisely will the watching world see the power of God at work within us. We must guard against acting like fools. Well, how do we act like fools? Well, one way is to live for money. Paul warns against that in 1 Timothy 6.9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless or foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. But it's not simply desiring to be rich that makes us foolish. When we live worried about the bottom line, about retirement, about insurance, about mortgages, we are foolish because we give up the joy of living holy for Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that those things are not things that we, need to, that we don't need to deal with in life, because we do. But when we trust money as the source of our security, rather than God's promise that he joyfully provides all that we need, our focus is in the wrong place. And the world will see that. If we act no differently in trying to provide for our future financial security than everybody else, then how are we any different than the world? Paul talked about other ways a believer could act foolishly when he was discussing those put-offs and those things you put to death back in chapters 2 and 3. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Not unwise but wise. Paul told us that wisdom is is found in the fullness of Christ. It's found in the mystery of God's plan unfolded in Christ so that to walk in wisdom is to live a Christ-like life. Wisdom is acting in accordance with God's word. Next, Paul tells us to make the best use of the time. Now, Moses prayed in Psalm 90.12, the only psalm attributed to Moses. He says, so teach us, God, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so we may get a heart of wisdom. That's sobering for us that are putting on some years because, you know, what are our days? And how do we get a heart of wisdom? How do we serve God the way we're supposed to? Life is short. Every day, people die without Christ. Our opportunities are fleeting to be able to share that good news. Christ may return at any moment. We must make the most out of every opportunity we have to preach the gospel. We must snatch up every opportunity that we are given. The time is now for us to speak with our lives for Jesus Christ. And our speech is to be gracious, seasoned with salt. Speaking with grace means to say what is spiritual, wholesome, fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimentary, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful. 
Paul said in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting or unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is everything that we're saying to other people giving grace to those who hear, or is it stoking flames of resentment and bitterness and disagreement? Back at 3.16 in Colossians, Paul talked about the speech of believers within the church. We should be teaching and admonishing and singing songs of praise. He clearly meant this to apply to our speech with those in the unbelieving world as well. We must witness to Christ in everything that we say and everything that we do. Remember Paul's qualification for elders at 1 Timothy 3.7 that Eli talked about says, The elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. Clearly, this standard of conduct applies to all believers, to everyone. So our speech must be seasoned with salt. Well, what is salt? Saltiness is gracious, wise, informed, redemptive speech. Jesus used the expression seasoned with salt in every one of the Gospels several times. Salt gives flavor to what we eat, to what we say as well. And it preserves that to which it is applied. Paul's instructions to the Colossians and to us counters what oftentimes amounts to a very casual zeal, arrogance, argument, hot-headed diatribes with outsiders. We engage in those all the time. Our speech must not be abusive and bullying. It should be patterned after the example of Christ, as it says in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, who judges justly. When we're in those positions, we trust God. Jesus trusted God. We should trust God as well. And finally, Paul tells us that we need to know how we ought to answer every person. We should consider how to speak the right word at the right time to the right person. And this calls to mind 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Well, first they need to ask you, why are you acting this way? Why are you different? And then you have the opportunity, and it says defense simply means an explanation. We call it apologetics today, but it's an explanation of our faith. And that's what we're called to do there. So what we need to remember also is that the Holy Spirit himself will help us to do this, will give us words. Christ himself will give us a mouth and wisdom, as he said in Luke 21. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus Christ himself, through his Spirit, will give us the words. Now, we need to be in Christ as we're doing that. We can't be listening to someone but not listening, thinking about what's my counterpoint or waiting for the other person to take a breath so you can get some words in edgewise. We need to be in the Spirit. We need to be listening. We need to be praying. Well, in Colossae and in first century Roman life, the Christians were called to talk about their faith and to preach the gospel, which required not only knowledge of the words of the gospel, but also sensitivity in response to all the different kinds of people they encountered. And so, was, so must we. Paul here is talking about the how. Words full of grace shape how the unbeliever perceives the gospel. And if you say, you know, you are a sinner, you're stupid, you know, whatever. You know, it, it, there's no effect to that, is there? 
The how is important because the unbeliever will perceive the gospel in a certain way based upon how you are. The what, though, is the critical piece. The how is important. The what is the critical piece. While graceful speech might favorably incline those observing it or listening to it, salvation is found only, only in God's word, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are plenty of good, kind, graceful people in this world who are unbelievers. No one is saved without the word. And this is the word of the gospel. The price to be paid for our sins before a holy, sinless God is death. Christ died for our sins, a death we deserved in accordance with God's promise in the Bible. He paid the price for our sins so that we would not have to pay it. He died on a cross, was buried, and three days later was resurrected from the dead, back to life, ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. He defeated death so that we need to no longer fear it. And friends, if anyone is here today who has not heard the good news of the gospel and has not accepted God's free gift of forgiveness, today is the day to do that. God's word says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So Paul, in his letter, and the next part of the letter really is about final greetings, it's called, and there's some interesting things there. But he's come full circle in this letter. He begins this letter with the report of his prayer of thanks for the Colossians and of his work for the gospel. And here he ends this teaching part of the letter with the request that they and us should pray like he prays. And they should work, and we should work like he works. Their and our prayer and our lives, like his, are to be the expressions of the loving wisdom of God reached out in Christ to save the world. We are to be a blessing and proclaimers of truth to the unsaved world so that they will embrace the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tall order for us. Lord. We have those things that we love, that we cling to, and yet we want to serve you, Lord. So remove those impediments, those objections that we have and show us the way to go out. Be salt and light to the world. Use words that are gracious and salt and light to those around us so that we can tell people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we can pray. We can pray like Paul did. We can pray like all the giants of the faith did, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.